Guinea-Bissau has hundreds of kilometers of unguarded coastline. It's a trafficker's paradise. We'd heard after the boat wreck, millions of dollars of cocaine washed up here. Policing the waters of Montenegro, a beautiful coastline, but there's evidence that drug gangs have targeted these waters as the ideal entry point into Europe for South American cocaine. Undercover agents had tracked cocaine from Peru and Brazil as it was shipped across the Atlantic to Italy on cargo vessels. Police said the Nandrangata Mafia group in Calabria was at the centre of the trade. Last week we focused on following the cocaine from Colombia into Central America and onto Mexico, where cartels vie for control over the cocaine supply to the biggest consumer market in the world, the United States. On this episode, our journey follows the cocaine out of South America and across the Atlantic. We'll visit a country that has been dubbed by some a narco state in West Africa. Then we'll head into the second largest cocaine market in the world, Europe, where we'll talk about the Italian mafia group who control the vast majority of the cocaine trade on the continent. There are an estimated 4 million cocaine users in Europe. Almost 90% of those users are spread across just seven countries. Germany, Italy, France, the UK, the Netherlands and Spain. And according to Europol, the European cocaine market is worth at least 9 billion euros a year. This is part two of cocaine trafficking, South America to West Africa and Europe. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organised Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. For 12 weeks, this special edition weekly podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organised crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. One of the cocaine trafficking routes from South America to Europe goes through the tiny West African nation of Guinea-Bissau. Historically, Guinea-Bissau and the West African region as a whole developed as a transit market for two reasons. Firstly, the sheer volume of cocaine production. There was just plenty to move into different markets. And secondly, the pressure in the Caribbean region which meant that the cartels and traffickers were looking for different routes. So from the early 2000s, in Guinea-Bissau and West Africa more widely, cocaine began to move. It started in small quantities before shipments grew larger. And the geographic location of the country combined with the political situation fitted quite neatly into the cocaine economy. Cocaine trafficking has so infiltrated the upper echelons of society, both political and military, that it was once dubbed a narco-state by both the United Nations and the United States. Mark Shaw is the director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime and the author of a new policy paper, Breaking the Vicious Cycle, Cocaine Politics in Guinea-Bissau. Yeah, it's interesting that terminology because there's been, and perhaps it's a little bit of an academic discussion, but I think it's an important one. There's not really a clear definition of what a narco state is. So is a, is a narco state a, a state where all government entities are, are captured by the cocaine trade? Guinea-Bissau doesn't, in my view, fulfill that definition. Uh, Guinea-Bissau, in some ways, is a, it's an elite network which has controlled 
and protected the cocaine trade, so both in the political elite and within the military. And both the, the UN, the UNODC, and the US in particular have used the term narco-state to describe Guinea-Bissau. I think the point around Guinea-Bissau is, firstly, cocaine is not the only illicit commodity. And in comparative terms, uh, given volumes of cocaine moving elsewhere, the amount of cocaine moving through Guinea-Bissau is not anywhere near that moving through, through a state, say, like Mexico or elsewhere. But the point is, fundamentally, it's a very small country with around 1.8 million people. You know, so that's much smaller than many cities on the African continent. And cocaine, over time, became an important resource in a declining economy to provide patronage in the political elite and to fund and to support elections for some players. And so that's how cocaine became embedded in the political economy. And there's been sort of quite dramatic ups and downs since the cocaine economy broadly put began in, in the late 1990s in Guinea-Bissau. And why was the cocaine money able to penetrate so far into the political and military society? You know, it's a, it's a longer story. Guinea-Bissau emerged from structural adjustment. It, its economy is extremely weak. It's very reliant on a limited number of export commodities, cashew nuts, for example. So at the end of the Cold War and emerging into the sort of 2000s, Guinea-Bissau had never really held democratic elections. And so the country then entered this period of democracy, as indeed many African states did at the same time. And cocaine was beginning to enter the, the country at that time. The military were key to controlling or protecting that market. But for a political elite eager for unaccountable cash to fund elections. Now, it wasn't only cocaine money being used in different elections. There were other both licit and illicit flows. But the money from drugs is unaccountable, if you like, and it mixed very easily into, into the process. And I think became an important part then of the political economy. In 2012, the military were involved in a coup, which is often dubbed the cocaine coup. And that was key military figures seizing the state in part, I think, to bolster their chances of controlling the cocaine economy. But in their greediness, their relations with the cartels or the Latin Americans who were in Guinea-Bissau soured. So there's this quite interesting story where the relationship with the cartels was souring at the same time as the DEA mounted an operation in, in 2013. The senior military commanders, the chief of staff at the time, Antonio Njai, were quite attracted into the entrapment process simply because they were looking for money and their previous arrangements around cocaine supply had, had to some degree dried up. And out of that came the arrest of a particular prominent military figure, not in Jai, who was not arrested for a variety of reasons. And so the story of Guinea-Bissau was essentially cocaine then vanished or went deeper underground and there were no seizures until a set of very big seizures recently in end of 2019-2020. So cocaine has really returned again into the political economy of Guinea-Bissau and some of the same figures, the same military figures, including Antonio Njai, have re-emerged into the local political economy in, in quite a prominent way now. Given the fact that the military and the politicians, or at least some of them, are involved with the cocaine trafficking to a certain degree, has COVID-19 actually had an impact on the transit of cocaine through the country? The general sense from civil society partners and others in Guinea-Bissau is that there are drugs moving 
now. So reports of movement late at night, etc. Now very hard to get a good feel on what is going. But the two very big seizures recently do suggest that large consignments have indeed moved through Guinea-Bissau and continue to move. I think the important point on COVID is that some forms of movement are unaffected by the general disruption that COVID brings. And I think Guinea-Bissau is a good example. If you are using boats which cross the Atlantic from Latin America and then unload, one of the advantages of Guinea-Bissau is that it's got a lot of islands, some 88 islands off the coast. So it makes it quite a vulnerable coast for drug trafficking. Is that you're not affected by declining container trade or declining airline flights or, or the like. So the bulk supply can continue to move through Guinea-Bissau and then onward through the usual route through Europe. So there is a sense that the lockdowns around COVID have been beneficial to traffickers because it has removed both local and international visibility of what is going on. Do you expect that once restrictions around the world are lifted, will Guinea-Bissau resume its position as a transit hub for cocaine? Yeah, it's a really good question, Jack. I think right now it's a transit hub for a variety of reasons. There's been a political change, a set of military actors who have been involved in the past appear to be involved again, and there's not much visibility about what's going on. I think the long-term problems of Guinea-Bissau are not necessarily of cocaine trafficking. They are on providing sustainable economic growth. They're on providing a political system that doesn't generate conflict as Guinea-Bissau has since literally since independence. Right now, I think you can say, look, it's difficult. It's Guinea-Bissau is not very high on the global policy agenda, to put it mildly, given the crisis with the pandemic. But there needs to be a, a rethink not only on cocaine, but on governance in Guinea-Bissau and on ending these cycles of conflict and instability. Guinea-Bissau is attractive to traffickers precisely because it's unstable, precisely because people are open and able to be corrupted, precisely because individuals within the military are eager to obtain cash, which feeds the political system. So it's a sort of cycle which continues. And unless that's broken, yes, after COVID, Guinea-Bissau will continue to be a kind of transit state. That applies equally to the whole West African coastline, actually. Guinea-Bissau is a very visible component of this. But there have also been seizures in Senegal, in Cape Verde, which has a, an issue of money laundering and the like. So it's a broader issue than just Guinea-Bissau. But Guinea-Bissau, in, in a very small vortex of conflict and instability, provides a safe haven for the transit of the cocaine trade. That was Mark Shaw, the director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. And you can read Mark's policy paper, Breaking the Vicious Cycle, Cocaine Politics in Guinea-Bissau, by going to our website, www.globalinitiative.net. Now let's turn to one of the other major markets, Europe. Over the past few weeks, it's been reported that there has been an increase in the volume of cocaine shipped from Latin America to Belgium, which suggests that drug trafficking groups in Latin America were transporting as much of the drug as possible while they still could. Meanwhile, in mid-April, the UK border force discovered 14 kilograms of cocaine with the potential street value of up to a million pounds, hidden within a box of medical face masks. It's clear that organised drug trafficking networks are still shipping cocaine. And much of this trade is controlled by Italian mafia groups, in particular the Drangheta in Calabria. So how big is the cocaine market in Italy? 
Sergio Nazaro is a journalist and writer who has been analysing organised crime for the past 25 years. He is also the spokesman for the president of the Anti-Mafia Parliamentary Commission in Italy and a member of the GI network of experts. It's a billionaire market, absolutely. It's the main drug market. And we have in Italy, Drangheta, that it's the mafia from Calabria. As you know, we have mafia in Sicily, Drangheta in Calabria, Camorra in Campania. Different uh, names for different organized crime groups. Drangheta, it's not just the biggest player in Italy. It's the biggest player worldwide. I mean, they are the world broker for cocaine. So we are talking about people that talks directly with South America. They are broker also for the other criminal groups in Italy because they are more reliable, they are more serious. And there is one point why they got so powerful, because they have no witness inside their groups. Why you had so many people collaborating with justice over the years, either from Camorra, either from Mafia, from Calabria, there are always few of them. Why? Because there are family ties. So you don't betray your father, your mother, your brother, your cousins. So the market is really wide. Italy is just, in a way, a big harbour. And they after spread all around Europe and wherever you need cocaine, Italian people is in the play. There are reports that the Drangheta control up to 80% of the cocaine market in Europe. Has their ability to operate been affected by COVID? I was speaking with the director of the Central Service Against Drug Trafficking. It's a central service that unites different law enforcement here in Italy. And of course, it did slow down. And there are different situations. The market, of course, moves with the legal free trade. If you move goods from a point A to point B in the world, you can move drugs the same way. But in this moment, everything is stopped. Or anyway, way, it's slowed down. So it's more difficult. It's more risky. And this also creates a different kind of price for cocaine around the world. What role does cocaine trafficking play within the other Italian organized crime groups like the Cosa Nostra and the Camorra? And so Drangheta controls the market, also for the other groups. Drugs and cocaine, it's the main engine for money. That's for sure. If you talk about Rome, the main city, in the capital city in Italy, there is a drug trafficking of cocaine that is enormous. It's really incredible. I mean, just one group that was working, this was an investigation proven that Italian people were working with Albanian people. They were moving seven, eight tons of cocaine just in one shot. Do the Drangheta and Camorra and the Cosa Nostra distribute the cocaine themselves or do they pass it on to lower level street gangs and dealers? I did study a lot of Nigerian mafia here in Italy and this was from Camorra that they have the first idea about. In the beginning, to have black people or another mafia, you don't, you don't play in our nation. There is mafia. So we made it. We have the copyright on the world. We are going to rule the world. This is their idea about. So other mafia, there exist in Italy. Chinese mafia, Russian mafia, Albanian mafia. But they are under the control of Italian groups. 
So, the Camorra and the Sword, they, they could be the broker, like in Drangheta, you buy and you work out after. The, the, the dangerous job is done by the poor people, the drug dealers on the street. That's it. Because when you move one tons, two tons, huge cargo of cocaine, you don't need to deal also on the street. It's getting always more and more dangerous because police is always around, investigation, trials. So it's better to be just broker that it's already more than dangerous. And the next step is to move this money in a legal way. In the last COVID Crime Watch newsletter, which is put together by the GI, there were reports that in Calabria, 500 kilos of cocaine belonging to the Drangheta was found buried in the countryside. Why would this have been buried and is that unusual? Not really. We have to understand the investigation. We have to understand why they were keeping over there. But maybe for sure they were just keeping there to hide to control the merchandising, let's call it in this way, and to move it again. So, can you imagine, we are sizing that amount of cocaine in Calabria. We are sizing amount of cocaine on the sea. Everywhere it's coming. And let's say something new. In this moment, in Peru, it's a sharp drop, the price of the leaf of the coke per kilo. It's very low. Why? Because there is a lockdown over there too. So you are producing so much, but you cannot sell it outside. So this is a problem. First. Second, on the other side of the ocean, here in Europe, you need cocaine. But to bring it down here, while the price fallen, here the price on the other side rise up. And do you want to have an exclusive for your podcast? I'm going to give it to you right away. Because I already got this news that in Germany, the price is falling of the cocaine. And the police is trying to figure out what's going on over there. So while in Italy, Spain, it's more expensive because this COVID stopped the narco-trafficking, I mean, in the usual huge amount, in the production center, the price is falling. But in Germany, the same, it's falling on the street. So drug dealers find a, a new road that we are trying to figure out what's going on, which is this new road, and how they could manage this new road. So, so you see, mafia is always more than a business class in the economic school of London. I mean, economic school of London, they can go in uh, Mexico or in Italy and learn how to make real economy working on. And do you expect the mafia groups to thrive from this crisis? This is, this is the biggest opportunity they never had. Listen, 2007-2008, the bank crisis, you know, the economic crisis. First of all, many sources told me, what do you think? At that moment, that everyone was going broken, the fault was of the banks, if we remember well. The money of drug trafficking kept economic life keep going. And what about cocaine distribution after this pandemic? Do you think it will increase? They are going to be careful, these people, but everything is going to spin around the same. And maybe they are going to have a boost. Of course, we have economic crisis, but you remember again, 2007, 2008, 
the cocaine was it did never stop. I mean, we are at the point where the people, if they cannot eat, they prefer to have a shot of cocaine in the nose. You know, so you, 50 euro, you are going to always find to have some cocaine instead of trying to do something else. And this is another drama. This is another problem. COVID-19, cocaine, mafia are the names for different types of virus. That's for sure. That was Sergio Nazaro, journalist and member of the GI network of experts. He is also the spokesman for the president of the Anti-Mafia Parliamentary Commission in Italy. Sergio has a series of interviews and analysis of Italian organized crime for the GI with a range of leading experts, which will be available on the Global Initiative website soon. As you can tell, Europe has long been a major market for illicit drugs with the Balkans an important endpoint for drug trafficking, particularly for heroin that comes from the East. But over the last couple of decades, cocaine has been shipped from Latin America into countries like Albania and Montenegro, also arriving by plane into Serbia, Bosnia and Croatia, and from there it's distributed in all directions. Faciona Medini is the Field Network Coordinator for the Balkans at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. It might follow the, the Western path, This means that the cocaine is going to go European Western countries for further distribution, or it might go eastward. And when we say eastward, we mean here that the cocaine from the Balkans can go in um, European Union countries such as Romania or Bulgaria, but also in uh, other countries in, in the east of the Balkans, which is Turkey. On the other hand, the Balkans is a place of origin for cannabis and also from synthetic drugs. So we have more Albania in producing illicit cannabis. But on the other hand, we have other countries in the region like Serbia and also North Macedonia to certain degrees that they are known for the production of the synthetic drugs. As it happens with cocaine, also with the synthetic drugs, they can go westward, but mainly the synthetic drugs, they go into the east. With the COVID lockdowns beginning to be eased in different parts of Europe, have drugs still been flowing through the region regardless? COVID-19 has brought difficulties for criminal organization uh, from the Balkans engaged in the drug trafficking. However, it didn't bring the traffic to a halt. The trafficking has continued and it has continued on the maritime routes because maritime routes and the road traffic also has been open, although much more controlled than before. And of course, it has been not anymore possible through planes. But yeah, we cannot deny that all this situation also have brought a difficult time for, for criminal groups, like for other, let's say, quotation businesses all around the world. But of course, it has continued. And uh, I don't think that anything is, has changed meanwhile. And I, and I really think that as soon as the restrictions are going to be eased, we are going to see the, the resume of the traditional routes. And probably we are going to see more flows of drugs going through this route. So nothing has changed in, in, um, in general, but the difficulties of the criminal groups have been uh, big. Since we know that some criminal organizations from the Balkans, they also operate in other countries, with a lockdown all over the world, many from these uh, criminals that they were already being and operating criminal activities in other countries, they returned home. Majority of the Balkan countries, they, they have imposed 50-day quarantine for everybody that, that come abroad. 
we have testimonies, especially from Montenegro, where notorious criminals that they were operating in Western Europe, they were locked for 15 days in Montenegro because they were coming from abroad. And of course, this has also brought some difficulties in operating business. But as I said, I don't think that the drug trafficking has stopped. And I think that is going to be resumed very soon. And you mentioned, obviously, the issue with movement restrictions. Although illicit drugs are clearly still moving, have these restrictions made transportation more difficult? And does that reflect in the price of the illicit drug? What we have seen is a raise of the local demand from the drug consumption. And also we have seen an increase of prices for, for drugs in the region itself. With the COVID-19 and all the crisis that it caused, it was not easy for criminal groups to have all these loads coming and going. So this, of course, have affected the price. And what we are seeing is like a, an increased price in almost every kind of drug that, uh, that passes through the Balkans. There have been some, some like really interesting phenomenon happening during that, this time for criminal groups. Like, for example, it was, it was interesting to see that some of the groups, they could be able to take loads of cocaine from Latin America, though the lockdowns, but they will have difficulties in paying for, for the drugs that they had in. Because uh, the, the way how the, the, the drug is paid is, of course, not through the official channels. And in order for you to pay some loads of cocaine that you get from Latin America, you have to use people. So you have to use cars and you have to use planes and you have to, to give people cash. You have to flew many people in, in Latin America in order for them to pay back the, the, the cocaine that, that has been taken. But now what we have seen, it has been some loads of cocaine entering not just only in the Western Balkan region, but also in, in many other Western European uh, ports and difficulties in terms of like paying for this drug because of the lockdown. So it has been quite interesting, in fact, because the criminals have faced some um, some difficulties that they, they could not like really foresee. That was Faciona Maidini, the field network coordinator for the Balkans at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. During the last two episodes, we've traveled along the cocaine trafficking routes, looking at how it's been impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. In part one, we traveled from Colombia, heading north through Central America and into Mexico. And in this episode, we left South America, crossing the Atlantic Ocean until we reached the shores of West Africa and Europe. With huge economic challenges on the horizon, what are the long-term implications of COVID-19 to the illicit drugs market? Jason Eli is a senior expert with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime and the author of a report on the impacts of the global coronavirus pandemic on illicit drug markets. Well, I think that's the $165 billion question. I do think that uh, markets will find a way to adapt to the different consumer environments that might evolve as a result of what is likely to be an economic downturn in the post-pandemic period, they've been through recessions before and it didn't stop the flow of drugs and it didn't stop people from buying them. It perhaps reduced the exchanges that occurred in, in some way, but, but the profits were largely unchanged. I think it's interesting to look at whether this particular economic impact is going to affect the supply chains in other ways. 
Will these trafficking organizations identify different countries or new countries in crisis as locations from which they feel that they can operate more efficiently? I'm thinking here of perhaps the African continent and the potential impacts that an economic crisis would have on many countries there. We know that when these types of organizations come into a country to facilitate the trade and expansion of their business, this isn't something that, that just stays in the community sphere. This has knock-on effects to governance as a whole, including exploitation of government structures and perhaps in some more extreme examples, the complete corruption of government structures and the regime in which they're placed. So there is, I think, some reason to to fear what could be a serious economic downturn in, in some countries and the exploitation potential of organized criminal groups to find ways to take advantage of that, to solidify their hold and to solidify another link in their ever-expanding and ever-diversifying uh, supply chains. That was Jason Eli, a senior expert here at the GI and author of the report on the impacts of the global coronavirus pandemic on illicit drug markets. That's all we've got time for this week. A special thank you to Mark, Sergio, Facciona and Jason. Remember that you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter about coronavirus and organised crime by heading over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net. Don't forget that you can find the GI on social media by searching for The Global Initiative. Please leave us a review, like, subscribe and share the podcast around. Next week we'll be looking at the global trade in heroin. So until then, this is The Impact Coronavirus and Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers and we'll talk to you soon.